Peter chapter 3, please. 1 Peter 3. Kind of getting back in track here with 1 Peter. Last week we kind of did a little bit of an interesting study. We did a chunk of 3 and a chunk of 4. We talked about the sufferings of Christ. And it kind of went over a couple different chapters. So therefore we kind of took it as one big subject. We're jumping back now, picking up here in verses 18 and 19, where we left off two weeks ago. And we're going to hopefully, Lord willing, time willing, get to verse 7. Now there's some really funky verses here tonight. And part of the beauty of a Wednesday night is, is we get a chance to chew on this and we get to talk about things that if we were going through it on a Sunday, we really wouldn't hit it too awful much. But on a Wednesday night, we get a chance to chew into this a little bit more. This is why I love Wednesdays. Um, in the years I've been teaching Wednesdays out here, I always love the uniqueness of it, the question answer, the just ways to get into stuff you normally don't get a chance to talk to. So without much further ado, First Peter chapter 3. Let's go ahead and start here in uh, verse 18. It says, For Christ offered suffered once for sins, that the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. That's what we talked about last week, this idea of Christ's suffering and part of the purpose of sufferings. If you weren't worthless last week and you are going through a difficult time, be it emotionally, spiritually, or physically, you have a loved one going through a difficult time, I encourage you to get a copy of last week's lesson and get a chance to listen to it or pass it along because God's Word was so good and the verses were so good on just understanding suffering. So that's where we left off last week. But then verse 19, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now, that's just a little strange. Because when you look at this, verse 19, you have to stop and say, well, wait a second. Who are the spirits that he's preaching to? Where is the prison that they were preaching to? And then verse 20 gives a little more context that we're talking about the day of Noah that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and the thing of Noah has absolutely always fascinated me. If you've never studied out Noah, you need to go back and study him out. Because first off, what we can piece together in the Bible, it took him about 120 years to build the ark, which I just find a fascinating thing. If you are ever having something in your life right now where you're waiting on the Lord to move, I don't think anything compares to Noah 120 years of working on one ministry right there. And the Bible says while he was working on that ark, he was actually preaching. The Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness because it's very fascinating when you go back and study out Noah. A lot of people believe, and we don't know 100% for sure, but that before the flood that the uh, ecosystem of the earth was different. And so therefore they would not have had rains like we had rain here today. So this idea of him building this big ark for this flood that's coming for 120 years, he's talking about it, that's a fascinating thing. Number two about Noah, he built this ark. He built a lot of this ark by himself. Because when Noah started building the ark, if you do the genealogy of his family, he had three boys, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. His boys weren't born yet by the time he was actually building the ark. So he did a lot of this work by himself, and he did a lot of this stuff as his kids were little, his kids were young. It's just a fascinating story there, and you need to go back and read that if you want to study that out. But back to the context of what we're talking about here today, what in the world are we talking about? There's really two main perspectives, the way to look at this. First one is, some people believe that this passage right here in verse 19, where it talks about Jesus going and preaching to the spirits in prison, some people believe that that is an actual example of what Christ did for those three days that he was in the tomb. That that's what he did between his death and his resurrection. And the way they put these, all these scriptures together is it says in the book of Ephesians that Jesus led captivity captive. And we know from the book of Acts that the Bible says that Jesus went down to Hades, which is the Greek word for the abode of the dead. So what some people believe is during Christ's death and resurrection for those three days, he actually went down to Hades, 
is where the Old Testament saints were. He went to them and preached to them. Now that word preach just means to proclaim. It doesn't mean he gave them a second chance. So he went down there, proclaimed that your Messiah, that your Savior has now taken care of your sins. And then he led the captives that were captive. He led them up to heaven. And that's what he did. And that's what some people believe, that that's what he was doing for those three days. If you put together the verse in Acts, the verse in Ephesians, and the first also here in First Peter, the reason some people have problems with that is because they see this word preach, and they say, wait a second, there's no such thing as a second chance salvation. Once you die and you're dead, you don't get another chance. The word preach means to proclaim. It doesn't mean he was giving them a second chance. That's one way to look at that verse. The other way is that this is a picture of Jesus preaching through Noah. Once again, we know that the Bible calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. And so therefore, it's an idea of God using Noah to preach for those 120 years to say, hey, this is coming, be saved. Now, the sad part about the ministry of Noah is we know for 120 years he preached. And do you know how many souls got saved through Noah's preaching? None. Well, eight, yes. It's like a church and the only people that come is your own family. Yes, that's, it was him, his wife, his three boys, and their wives. So that's what it was. You know, the best way to grow your church is by the pastor having kids. I didn't know if you knew that or not. And just for the record, we're done. So the church is not growing anymore for my family. But Noah ate. Now, just stop and think about that for a second. Have you ever had a loved one that you have just been so just, I want to see them make good choices. I want them to get them out of the slop. I want them to make better choices. Maybe it's your spouse, it's your kids, it's your coworker. And so you just pray and pray. And then after a week of praying, you're really frustrated. This is 120 years of praying and ministering and working by himself and raising a family and 120 years of ridicule, 120 years of what are you doing? And when it finally came time, the fruit that came out of it was literally his only his own family. Noah's quite the guy. He really is. And I encourage you, if you're going through a difficult time and right now things aren't moving quick enough for you or there's not a lot of fruit in your life right now and you're getting discouraged, go back and read the story of Noah. You'll be blessed by that in Genesis 6. and You'll see what God has in store there. So once again, when you look at this passage right here in verses 19 and 20, two points of view on that. Some people take it to believe that Jesus, between his death and resurrection, went down to this where the Old Testament saints were. These would have been where David was and Abraham and Moses, etc. And he led them up to heaven because the only way to get into heaven is through what? Jesus Christ. So therefore, the Old Testament saints waited in this place called paradise where they were waiting for their Messiah. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he went down to them and preached to them, which means proclaimed, proclaimed to them that your Savior has come. He led them up to heaven and therefore they were able to enjoy heaven. Or it means probably this idea of that through Noah... It was a picture of Christ preaching righteousness there. Two wings to kind of chew on a little bit. That's kind of the interesting stuff that we can get into a Wednesday night that we normally don't get into on a Sunday. So for some of you that were raised in a mainline church, you may remember that from the Apostles' Creed, that idea of he descended into hell. That's kind of what the background is on that, is that some people believe that Christ descended into there, led them out, and that's kind of the background on that for you that were raised with that. So maybe you have any quick questions, comments about this? Ron? Well, what happened was, is the Old Testament was when you died in the Old Testament, you went to a place called Sheol, which is a Hebrew word that means the abode of the dead. Now, in the Old Testament, this Sheol was divided into two compartments. You had the good side and you had the bad side. The bad side were people that rejected God. These were the people that rejected any idea of God. These were the people that were not saved. So they were put in the bad side. The good side were the good people that believed in the Messiah and trusted and had hope in the Messiah that was to come. So when they died, they were put in the good side. So what happened is, what a lot of people believe is, 
when Jesus did those three days, he went down to the good side of Sheol and said, you guys have been waiting for your Messiah. You've been waiting for your Savior. Your Messiah and Savior is here. Put all the verses together. I will lead you free now into heaven. I will then preach to you, proclaim to you that the gospel is here because I am here, the Messiah, and I will take all those people that waited faithfully on the Messiah and lead them into heaven. So when you were in the Old Testament, when you died, you went to one or two places. You either went to the good side of Sheol because you believed in the Messiah that was to come, or you went to the bad side of Sheol, which is a place of torment. Now, if you remember from your Bible in Luke chapter 16, there's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus gives us a behind-the-scenes look into what was going on because what happens is Lazarus was a good guy, and he went to the good side of Sheol, or in the New Testament it's called Hades because it's a different language, it's Greek, and then the rich man went to the bad side. So that's kind of what happened in the Old Testament. You went to either the good side or the bad side, depending if you were trusting in the Messiah to come or depending if you rejected who God was. So I'll hand up over there. John. Oh, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what it was. There was an impossible gulf between them in Luke chapter 16, so that way the good people couldn't fall into the bad side and the bad people couldn't sneak into the good side. And so if you look in Luke 16, it's a little spiritual background there of what that was like, and that's what we can piece together there from the Old Testament. John. Mm-hmm. Bingo. The Bible says they died believing in the hope that was to come, and they believed in the hope that was to come was their Messiah. And this is an important point. The only way anyone gets to heaven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. So therefore, Old Testament saints had to wait till their sin was taken care of through the Messiah, which was Jesus. So they were put in the good side of Sheol or Hades. Once again, as, as Ryan was mentioning there in Luke 16, it's called Abraham's bosom. It was a place of paradise. And they waited for their Messiah to come. So when their Messiah came in Christ, he preached to them, proclaimed to them, salvation is here. And then he led them up into heaven because only through Christ can you get to heaven. So that's kind of the background on that. That's the one side on that. Megan. No, Sheol and Hades, Sheol is the Hebrew word of it, Hades is the Greek word of it. It's just two different languages saying the same thing. Okay? So that's why if you read in the Old Testament, it uses the word Sheol. If you read in the New Testament, it uses the word Hades. So that's why we have to mention both words, because if you say, well, my Bible doesn't say Sheol, well, in the New Testament it uses the word Hades, but in the Old Testament it uses the word Sheol, Hebrew and Greek. Well, no, I said if you were raised in a, some of you were raised, and I, and I was not raised, I'm right here, I was raised in a non-denominational church, so I was a heathen, I did not have to learn the Apostles' Creed. Who, who had to learn the Apostles' Creed? Okay, what denominations were you guys? Everybody answer at once. Uh, see, I don't even know. So Lutherans, Lutherans had to learn the Apostles' Creed. Who else had to learn them? Did Methodists, Catholics. What's that? Congregationalists. Do I have any Baptists out there? No, Baptists didn't have to. See, Baptists were heathens too. So... I'm just kidding. Ba ba you don't mess with Baptists. I'm just telling you that right now. You don't want to get a Baptist mad at you. So I was, I was not raised that. So yes, if you were raised in a mainline church, as I'm assuming part of your catechism, you had to learn the Apostles' Creed. Correct me if I'm wrong. Ever, some people are nodding. Yes. Brian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a fascinating, fascinating one there. And because when you really look at that, you're getting, a, once again, another glimpse into the spiritual side that we normally don't get a glimpse into. But real quick, Megan, I realize I answered your question without answering your question. Where did that phrase, he descended into hell, came from? It came from the Apostles' Creed, which is something that mainline churches, you learned in catechism. That's what it came from. No, that phrase is not necessarily from the Bible. What we have in the Bible is there's a verse in the book of Acts, chapter 2, where it says that Jesus went down into Hades. We have that verse, and we also have a passage that we put together with 1 Peter here in Ephesians. If you believe that, that's how those all come together. It's like three different puzzle pieces that you put together to get a clearer picture. Yeah, Hades just means abode of the dead. That's what it means. So... 
when you were in the Old Testament, you died, and so you went to the abode of the dead. Well, once again, by putting this all together now, especially the passage in Luke 16, you, there's the good side of the abode of the dead and there's the bad side of the abode of the dead. It depends on which side of the tracks you are on. And so if you're on the good side, you're on the good side because you're waiting for your Messiah to come. And that side is now empty now because obviously Jesus, when he went down, he led them free up into heaven. So that side is now left empty there. Gross. This one here in Peter or oh, that one, yeah. Verse 19, he went to preach to the spirits in prison, yep. Anybody else have anything? Kind of a funky little topic, and let's, again, if we were on a Sunday morning, we wouldn't chew on it too much, but part of the beauty of the Wednesdays, we can chew on this stuff a little bit. Yeah, Marcus. Uh, what, what, his preface was, if I want to defer this question, that's fine. So. Right. And you're talking to someone who's not raised Catholic. So the only way I can talk about purgatory is because what I've read in the Catholic catechism. And if somebody who was a Catholic that wants to explain this better to me, feel free to pull me aside after church and let me know. My understanding of where purgatory comes in is this is a separate instance because in purgatory, it's actually a time of holding and refining before that you get to go to heaven. It's, correct me if I'm wrong, people that were raised Catholic. It's a purpose, a time of holding where you're being refined, and I'm probably oversimplifying it, is that you're not quite ready yet for heaven, but you're not yet, you're not going to hell. So you're in this middle ground of refining process to get better to make sure that you're spiritually ready to go into heaven. So it's a separate concept than what this is right here. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, if you can have loved ones in purgatory that you can pray and light candles for to help... Yes, to help them reach that point of spiritual readiness then for, for eternity in heaven. No, no, that is not in our Bible. No, that one is not. I have not. I, I, have, a, I have a copy. This is, thanks. We should have deferred that question. Um, I do have a copy of the Apocrypha back in my office. I have not looked in the Apocrypha for a long time. My understanding is it's not in that. The verses I have seen Catholics use to try to explain and defend purgatory do not come out of the Apocrypha. They try to use some verses in the Gospels. And I'm, obviously I'm not trying to start a spiritual war here, but obviously I don't think it lines up, and I don't think it really is. It doesn't line up, so that's my personal opinion. So now that we've opened up every can of worms on religion, yeah, Terry. Well, th that's an interesting thing. And that's a, that's a real good question. When did hell become hell? Turn, if you will, to Revelation 20. Because what happens is now, and since we've already opened up this can of worms, let's just open up the whole can of worms. Right now, when you die, if you are saved, you're going to Revelation 20. If you're saved, the Bible makes it abundantly clear, you go, you go right to heaven. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. There is this idea of you're with Jesus right away. But when you die now, if you're a non-believer, we have a tendency to simplify this and say, well, when you die, you go to hell. Technically, biblically speaking, when you die now, you go to Hades. And then in Hades, you go to hell later on. Now, the reason I normally just say you go to hell is because that's where you're eventually going to end up. Look here in Revelation chapter 20. This is the great white throne judgment. This is where all non-believers are judged at the end of time. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne with him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death, and here's our word, Hades, delivered up the dead who were in them. Now, I'm going to stop real quick. If we have any good old King Jamesers out there, I don't think your Bible says Hades, if I remember correctly. Correct? Right. It says hell, right? A better translation is Hades. If you look that word up in the original Greek, it literally is Hades. So death and Hades delivered up their dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Now, this is where you get the question of Terry asked. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. 
That is a Greek word that is Gehenna, which is what we normally consider hell. Verse 14, this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So from a truly biblical point of view, this is where we start getting into really a lot of detail. Hell is the Greek word Gehenna, which is translated lake of fire. That is the final resting place of all non-believers and the final resting place of Satan and all his fallen angels. But before, we're, I shouldn't say we're, before they're cast into hell, they go to Hades, which is the abode of the dead. Now, before someone thinks, well, wait a second here, what's Hades? When you study out what Hades is, Hades is a place of torment. Hades is, is, is a hell. That's what it is. But what happens is God in his infinite fairness and justice... He says, I'm not sending anyone to hell without giving them an opportunity. So they get an opportunity. If you look back in Revelation 20, verse uh, 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works. So God says, before I cast you into hell, I will give you an opportunity to show me, to tell me why you deserve heaven. Well, obviously, they don't have a reason to deserve heaven because if they're sitting here in Hades... That means they rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So what happens is people will get a shot, and you get to stand before God, and you need to get to make a case based on your works. I'm telling you right now, no one's works are good enough to get into heaven. And so therefore, God in his fairness and justice says, before I send you to hell, I will give you an opportunity to stand before here and tell me about what you did, how you lived your life, and if you're good enough for heaven. Yeah, yeah. Why would he give you a second chance? Is that what you said? Yeah. It's not really a second chance. It's, it's, a, it's, it's the right to a trial. And I hate to use that word because it makes it sound like a, a justice system. God and his justice says, I'm a fair God that I will give you an opportunity to stand before me and say, here's heaven. Why do you deserve it? And the answer is we'd only deserve heaven through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So it's not that God is being mean. God is actually in his justice and his fairness saying, here is why I am casting you into hell. To me, it almost reminds me of one of the things we do when we discipline the boys at home is we could just grab them, discipline them, and not say a single thing about it. What we normally do is we take them, we sit them down and say, listen, we are going to discipline you. The reason we're disciplining is you because you did X, Y, and Z. Since you did X, Y, and Z, here's the punishment for X, Y, and Z, and this is what we expect out of you from this point on. Yes, they're getting disciplined. Yes, there's a punishment there, but there is also a reason to explain what's going on. Jesus should say right here, the Lord, what he is doing is he's giving them an opportunity. This, I shouldn't say an opportunity. He's giving them an explanation and fairness and justice to say, this is why I'm doing this. John. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The only way I would probably go by this, if you go back, it says in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it in verse 13, is when you stand... Well, no, what it's saying here is this is the way I take that passage, and, and if someone's got a different opinion, let me know, is you get to stand before the Lord physically. And so therefore, yes, your, your soul, spirit is in Hades, but death is giving up the body. Death is giving up that physical body of the flesh. That's why the sea is giving up the dead, because you actually stand before the Lord in your body and say, here I am. And so that's what it is, is death is giving up its grip on everything, and death is giving up the bodies, and Hades is giving up the soul and spirit. Kathy? Mm -hmm. They're going to speak? Um, I don't know. I guess I've always looked at it as that idea of giving a chance. You, you make it for a good point. Maybe the point is that they don't get a chance to say something. Maybe it's just that they're judged according to the books that were written in them. So I know that they do get a chance to speak because in Luke 16, the rich man is speaking. 
He is saying things. You follow what I'm saying? So we do know that there is the ability there to speak and there's the ability to say things. Because in Luke 16, the rich man is saying, let me go back to my brothers. Let me do this. Let me do that. Is there a chance that the Lord is not going to let them even say anything? Yeah, there's a chance for that. So, But I would think that they may have a chance to say something, but it's a defenseless case. Yeah. Maybe something where God just literally opens up the book and says, let me read to you your life. And I don't see anything in there that says anything about Jesus. Yeah, Rose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing about the, the t- Hades. Hades is torment. And that's why I use the word Hades is hellish. I mean, it, it really is. I don't want to make it sound like in any way whatsoever that Hades is this spot where you yeah, just sit out here and chill out until we get you know thrown into hell. It's not like that in any way whatsoever. It's a place of torment there until that final casting. Brian, you had your hand up. <clears throat> And like I said, I, I got a copy of the Catholic Catechism back in my office. I've read it before, but you know, I obviously wasn't raised Catholic, and so you know, wasn't able to say for sure there. Yeah, Megan. Well, non-believers, non-believers, not believers. As soon as a believer dies, they go right to heaven, right to heaven. Non-believers, as soon as they die, they are placed into the torment of Hades. From Luke chapter 16, we know that as a fact. And then they're judged by their works, and then they're cast into the final resting place of hell. The best example I can use of this to, to tell you, it's almost like being found guilty. And so what happens is you're found guilty of your crime, so they send you to CCNO outside of Stryker. But you haven't done sentencing yet. So then you go before the judge. You're already guilty. You're already proven guilty. You don't know what your sentence is going to be. So you go before the judge. You get sentenced then, and then they move you to a prison in Ohio. That's the best example I can think of. People in Hades, they're guilty. It's already been determined, but they get to go stand before the judge. They receive their sentence, and their sentence, therefore, is hell for all of eternity. And so, therefore, that's why they're cast into hell. Betsy. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a good side and a bad side. Yeah. Yeah. Hades is the exact Right. And, and that's the hard part is because from a New Testament perspective... Hades is only where the bad people are. Because when Jesus died, if we believe what this is saying here in 1 Peter, if that's the view we take, he emptied out the good compartment of Hades, and that's just sitting there collecting mothballs. It's no longer no one's in there. No, because the best, the, right, the best example, and I, and I will keep referring back to this, is go read Luke 16. Because in Luke 16, you get a picture of the rich man in the tormented side of Hades, and you get a picture of Lazarus in the paradise side of Hades. Luke 16 gives us that spiritual background to show us what is really going on. And the reason, even though Luke 16 is in the New Testament, that passage is given before Jesus died on the cross. So what you're getting is an Old Testament look of what was going on in Hades there. Luke 16, I cannot stress that to you enough. Get a chance to read that, and that will open up your eyes on a lot of things. Anybody else got anything? Yeah, Terry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what you're saying there is you're using the example of the ark as a ark of salvation that protected the believers through the, the trials and tribulations of the flood there. Is that correct? Is that what you're saying? Paul is telling you to say yes. Just, just do whatever Paula says. Don't, don't argue with Paula. No, no, and I, and, I, and, I, and I hear what you're saying. Obviously, I'm a pre-trib guy. I'm a total pre-trib guy. The only thing I'll say to that is I've actually heard people use the example of the ark as an example of mid-trib and post-trib because they say, look, God kept them safe through the flood, and they still had to experience the flood 
but God kept them safe through it. So I know I just opened up another can of worms there at 8 o'clock, but I, I'm a pre-trib guy. I just want to make that abundantly, abundantly clear. But I have heard people actually use the example of the ark and Noah as, as to try to defend a mid-trib, post-trib view there too. So, But I understand what you're saying, Terry, and I agree with you. I, I get you on that one, man. So, Alrighty, it's, it's 8 o'clock, so we covered uh, one verse, verse 19. <laughs> Actually, I think we got verse 20. I think we got 19 and, and 20 there. So that, that counts. It's nice. I don't have to make sheets next week. Um, so keep your sheets for next week. And we'll go ahead and pick it up, I think, in verse 21. So uh, we're going to have a word of prayer here and we'll let you go. But after, before we let you go, just a couple quick reminders. Feel free to go back there and be blessed. A lot of neat stuff back there. Feel free to be blessed. Feel free to invite friends and family. Feel free to, as an outreach, to invite anybody to go back there and be blessed. Uh, number two, would actually to prayerfully consider, once again, and you know us, we're not trying to harp on anything. Prayerfully consider helping out with VBS. Also, a few more spots left back there at the garage sale giveaway. If you want to get involved with that, great opportunity to minister. Let's pray and we'll let you guys go. Heavenly Father, we're just thankful to be here tonight. Thank you for this time of fellowship. Thank you for this time just to be together. And Lord, we do ask for your blessing upon the garage sale giveaway. This to be a great way to just outreach, a great way to show the love of Christ in a tangible way. And we say thank you. We love you. We praise you. We lift this up in your name. Amen.